This episode, I'm joined by ethics professor and Kierkegaard scholar Rua Fremstera. We discuss the work of Pieter Wessel-Zapfer, Kierkegaard, and the topic of anti-natalism. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast as it runs off patronage alone, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Rua Fremstera. Thanks very much for joining us on Hermetic's podcast. We are going to be discussing the work of uh, Pieter Wessel Zapfer and alongside Kierkegaard as well, um, primarily from, once again, my own readings of The Last Messiah, which is one of the primary Zapfer texts, which is available in English. And then I've searched out as many of your own papers and your own work, uh, which you have a focus on Zapfian morality in relation to Kierkegaard uh, and a few papers around that, which were which were really great to read, especially for an English speaker interested in Zapfer. Um, so thanks very much for joining us on Amenics. And um, yeah, before we jump in, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do and uh, why it is you... You write about Zapfa or wrote about Zapfa because you said it's been a it's been a little while. Yes, thank you and uh, thanks for having me. So basically, um, I'm at the moment a philosophy professor with uh, lots of administrative duties and uh, yeah. So I, I'm publishing uh, on on Kierkegaard and existentialism in a broad sense, but and I actually got introduced to Zapfa when I was an undergraduate. So like many others, I found existentialism. <laughs> interesting and uh, we had a lot of courses on existentialism in a very wide sense including a lot of 19th century thinkers like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard <clears throat> and also we had courses on um, 19th century pessimism so uh, Schopenhauer and the people who provoked Nietzsche <clears throat> and in this connection uh, at least at Norwegian universities it felt uh, natural to introduce Sattva because Sattva himself um, described him as uh, a pessimist. And he obviously obviously meant pessimist in the old German sense, uh, roughly the view that uh, life is, is not good. There's, uh, it's it's uh, characterized by unhappiness rather than happiness. Um, <clears throat> so this is the view that's known from Schopenhauer. <clears throat> and and Sattva himself didn't really describe himself as a an existentialist. I don't even think he knew the 20th century existentialists until much later when he had basically developed his own theory. Mm. Yeah. Are you a pessimist? Would you consider yourself? Not really. So uh, I found that whole thing uh, thought-provoking. <clears throat> so it's, on the one hand, very appealing. Uh, many find it attractive and right, and, and there's a lot of uh, black humor, there's a lot of vivid descriptions and things that it's just so uh, appealing and strong. On the other hand, something seems very wrong about it. <laughs> uh, and so I tried to figure out what is wrong, uh, why shouldn't we be pessimists? <clears throat> and so uh, software tends to provoke its readers. They tend to either sort of embrace his pessimism or just reject it flat out. <clears throat> uh, mm. Often they, they don't care to spell out in any great detail exactly why he's right or wrong. So some of the literature is not very helpful. <clears throat> well, 
Um, before going forward into his ideas and also those of uh, Kierkegaard, I have to ask you the Hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? And uh, Zapfer is already waiting, sitting, waiting in the room. I, I think I'd start with Kant, actually. So uh, not the, the very boring Kant of uh, the groundworks and stuff <laughs> like that. More than the Kant that's interesting to hope and religious Fate, uh, and um, was discussing theodicy and the problem of evil and stuff like that. <clears throat> that uh, more existential or proto-existential Kant. And of course, um, Kierkegaard. Uh, I'm a Kierkegaard scholar, and I think that Kierkegaard is one of the greatest 19th century thinkers, really. <laughs> um, and the last one, perhaps either, either Nietzsche or uh, one of the contemporary pessimists, uh, perhaps... So uh, Banatar or someone, yeah, mm. yeah. Who do you th- who do you think would sort of lead that room? I mean, Kierkegaard, from from my understanding of his biography, he was quite energetic, but he was also quite a uh, a figure of solitude. So maybe no one would end up talking in that room; they'd all just be kind of miserable. <laughs> yeah. So often there's this problem of philosophers talking past each other and so on, <laughs> but uh, we do know. Uh, that, um, well, Sapu wasn't well-read in philosophy by today's standards. Mm-hmm. He did study philosophy at university only briefly. He didn't even have a, a BA or MA in philosophy. He just had a PhD. Uh, and this is possible because he had a law degree already. And then in the old university system, you could just submit <clears throat> a PhD in a new subject. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um it sounds crazy, but uh, there is a, this is an old continental system uh, that's still in place many places in Europe. Um, and so Sapu was pulled in different directions. On the one hand, he was very strongly influenced by a lot of literary writers and what we these days call continental philosophers. He, he was influenced by Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and Kierkegaard. <clears throat> On the other hand, when he... He got to Oslo and started to do his PhD. He got very strongly influenced by uh, logical positivism and the, the sort of analytic philosophy that was dominating in Oslo in those days. <laughs> so, particularly his friend, Professor uh, Arnenes, became, became very influential. <clears throat> and so, this basically led Sapfe to change his whole style. So um, if you read The Last Messiah, mm-hmm. it's a literary work from 1933. So he basically states his view there fairly clearly. Uh, it's a very pessimistic position. But then later on, uh, in 1941, when he defends his uh, dissertation, his PhD dissertation, to a large extent, the subject matter is the same. He's still discussing um, uh, pest- pessimism, but the style is very different. So it's a more of an academic style, much more influenced by biology and the positive sciences, and especially by Arnenes and the old-fashioned analytic philosophy. And also, he's not just stating his views, he's actually arguing for them and, and making them more... He's, he's making them a little bit weaker, and and he's he's retracting uh, some of the more extreme statements mm. he made actually. Um, yeah. 
Would you say he becomes sort of less romantic? So, the, you know, when no, I it's, it's um, I, I would say that he's slightly less pessimistic, and um, I I tend to think that his later view is easier to defend than his earlier view. So, is, would you say because a lot of people would would some people would throw Zapfer into the anti-natalist camp? Would you say that perhaps that might be a little bit correct early on? But as he moves through life, he uh, he mellows, but becomes a bit more analytical, and we begin to build this, build more systems. So I think he remained really a pessimist and an antinatalist. So he he was much more sort of um, <clears throat> his views were much darker than what most people would even imagine. But still, uh, when he tried to argue for his view, he had to weaken a few. De- points uh and it's perhaps we should postpone uh the details here because it's it's a little difficult to go into the uh, finer details before we have the broad picture <clears throat> and yeah so. okay okay well to to open up this broad picture then i mean one of the questions that we had down here was what's to do with the last messiah and we have these uh these four we could say pillars of that humans use human well i think in a way to say humans would probably be a bit of a problem for zapfer because we always have to focus on the biology so human beings you know us animals here on this cosmic rock uh that we use to build meaning so we have the biological the social the autotelic and the metaphysical and um these these all combine but um yeah, I mean, just what what are your thoughts on this foundation? Do you think there's any flaws in it? I mean, what what do you make of these these as uh, these four four sort of cornerstones of, I guess, existential meaning? Okay, so this is the crucial point, and so we could spend a lot of time here. At first, mm-hmm. I would say that it's um, it's very ambitious because it tries to say something about how the human condition is not just at the time but uh, at all times so he, he tries to say something about what necessarily characterizes the human condition and the way he goes about this is not to have an analytic of Dasein like like Heidegger does <clears throat> he's not even aware of uh, Heidegger at this stage <clears throat> so his approach is much more traditional and uh, very much incompatible with the the famous uh, French existentialism of Sartre. <laughs> because Sartre, he, he describes existentialism as the view that there is no human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Sartre, on the other hand, he tries to formulate a new theory of what human nature is. <clears throat> and so he makes the claim that we have four separate interests and these interests um, uh, constitute us as human beings uh, and this theory is is very sort of ambitious and bold and I think it's on the one hand not sufficiently elaborated on so uh, it's it's a big bold theory and he, he has some good points but it's not sufficiently developed so it's some some issues are fairly unclear on the other hand it's there are some difficulties. Uh, we could try a quick run through, or mm-hmm. what do you think? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so first off, he starts with biological interests. So he basically thinks that we need the nutrition and nutrition and um, 
and things like that. So this is something we share with the animals. And, and this is seems roughly right. And uh, he then goes on to claim that we have social interests because um, other human beings matter to us independently of their biological functions. So I care about other human beings, even if they do, don't su support me anyway biologically. Uh, I'm not going to eat or drink them or anything like that. So, so he, he claims that uh, mankind has a rep representation of um, the entire species of mankind as a whole, and this separates us from the animals. Some people might disagree with this today, but still it's not really decisive for his theory. Um, what is decisive is the next two uh, interests, so the autotelic interests and the metaphysical interests. <clears throat> and so basically the terminology here comes from aesthetics. So um, Sapfe was very much influenced by uh, some of the older literature in aesthetics that tried to explain why does art and music and things like that matter so much to us if they're useless in some sense, <laughs> uh, that they don't give us nutrition or anything biologically. <clears throat> uh, it's not even certain that they always uh, have this social function and so on. <clears throat> so Sapfer then said that um, art is typically about things that have value in themselves. <clears throat> so I typically find something pleasurable in itself. <clears throat> so playing guitar, for instance, is not just a means to something else. It's good in itself, roughly. <clears throat> so this is a familiar view that uh, Safwe extended. And he said that there are many things that can have this value, not just art and music. Uh, mountaineering is a fairly clear case for him. <clears throat> and experiences in nature. <clears throat> and so the problem uh, with Zappa is that this kind of meaning is only local, so it's only some parts of life that could have this meaning. It's fairly restricted. And he, I think he wants to say that this is because it, it's not self-sufficient. So for instance, I, I enjoy playing guitar, and Zappa certainly enjoyed mountaineering. But those things are not self-sufficient. It's not the case that you could have your entire life just consisting of mountaineering or guitar playing, right? So uh, both of them are dependent on other things in, for their existence. And so so Sopfer then wants to say that, well, fine, we have some local meaning in life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's not enough. So he, he makes the claim that uh, we lack a global meaning. <clears throat> so uh, he has this distinction here uh, between meaning in life. So he allows some meaning in life, yet he denies meaning of life as a whole. Uh, and he makes the further assumption that life as a whole cannot... Um, justify itself so he, he thinks that it's not some kind of value in itself it's rather something that needs an external justification so historically people might think of god or someone who who who, who had that kind of justification <clears throat> and and uh some don't, don't think that it's it's credible anymore obviously yeah mm -hmm. 
So in relation to your own work, I mean, Kierkegaard seems to be somewhat of a little bit of a surprising figure amidst yeah. that worldview, you know? Um, yeah, I am. You know, the, the, the man who had sort of the philosophy of faith. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too well read on Kierkegaard. I struggle with his prose, but, um, he seems surprising to be in that oeuvre because this notion of the problem of beauty, which is a typical Schopenhauerian problem of the world is dreadful, but things are beautiful and music is beautiful to listen to and art, we are interested in art, the problem of beauty or an animal amidst yeah. pessimism. Uh, so Schopenhauer and those those thinkers make sense, but Kierkegaard, not so much. So why do, why do you think Zappa, uh, you know, held him as such a great influence? Yeah, it's not just that Sattva himself was exposed to a sort of Christian background <laughs> and that the problems he discussed were um, were much internal to the, this tradition, like the problem of evil. How could a good God allow human suffering and evil? It's not just that. Uh, it's also the case that uh, in Sappho's diaries and the, the work he left behind that remains unpublished, uh, he he actually um, credits Kierkegaard as a kindred soul. And he seems influenced by some of Kierkegaard's pseudonyms that are rather pessimistic. <clears throat> so Kierkegaard, of course, is known as the melancholic Dane, right? He's not a very happy Christian. Uh, rather, he's, he's a very sort of bleak and melancholic one who's obsessed with uh, topics like despair <clears throat> and suffering. And so this seems to be the Kierkegaard that um, appreciated. And so uh, from what we can gather, the sources are a little scarce, but uh, Sopfer does have a few references to Kierkegaard. And roughly, it seems to be that he thought that Kierkegaard at least partially got the problem right. So his interpretation of the human situation seems at least partially right. So he he, he gets problem that has to do with pessimism, especially um, despair, right? <clears throat> and melancholy and problems like that. Um, on the other hand, his solution uh, is for something very incredible uh, or uh, impossible. It's it's just uh, his account of uh, religious belief or faith um, is so something that Sapfe, on the one hand, sort of dismisses. On the other hand, he actually buys into it because Kierkegaard famously, notoriously, interprets religious faith as being absurd <laughs> and paradoxical. This is something that uh, Sapfe really embraces, right? And on the other hand, um, Kierkegaard notoriously describes the transition to faith, the uh, conversion to faith as a leap. So Kierkegaard uses the Danish term uh, springe, which is translated as the leap. Kierkegaard actually never speaks of a leap of faith. He never speaks of a blind leap of faith. It's uh, the invention of the translators and commentators. Mm -hmm. It's not to be found in Kierkegaard. So, but the thing is that. Um, so sorry, just to stop you there. What is what is what's the difference between springer and leap? What have we got? What okay. of us? What of us English speakers go wrong? No, it's just that. It's basically it doesn't really have to do with the languages. It has to do with the the interpretations and um, 
commentators. So, so um, Kierkegaard basically used the leap or springer for a transition that's not deductive. When you uh, go from one category to another, so for instance, when I, I leap from moral consideration to considerations to merely prudential ones, or I, I I go from discussing, say, a political issue to uh, discussing, let's say, a legal one. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. So these kind of transitions to another category, that's a leap for Kierkegaard. <clears throat> and so he, he's very much aware of the fact that this is not something you can justify deductively, but still it's very important, both normatively and motivationally in human thought. And so at, at present, this is a big issue in, in analytic philosophy because uh, the discussions of uh, normative pluralism really um, <clears throat> sharpens this issue. So uh, let's say that you have several different standards, the moral ones, prudential ones, legal ones, aesthetic ones, and so on. And how could we at all compare them if we don't have any sort of common ground for comparing them, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so if it lack uh, a common ground, um then we only have different local standards we have no global ones and then uh the transition from one point of view to another one is just a, a leap <clears throat> and so um this looks like a, a transition that's not rational at all mm-hmm. uh but kirkor actually had, has a fairly sophisticated uh, account of how uh some leaps might be justified after all. And and to uh, to make that case, he has to rule out very sort of uh, relativistic views, right? So he, he basically uh, argues that some views have internal problems. They collapse internally, and that might justify the transition to a new standard. So that's roughly Kierkegaard's view. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Kierkegaard's uh, fairly sophisticated account here got... Um, simplified beyond recognition by some of the commentators and then uh it got transformed into what is known today as a blind leap of faith uh, so, so this it's not is... specifically to do with faith at all it's to do with that uh transition between deductive reasoning where there is no basis for deduction excellent question so on the one <laughs> hand it's, there is a general issue right so mm-hmm. Uh, it's the issue we run into every time we make a non-deductive uh, transition and when we try to enter a new category and we don't have any good justification for it. So we go from one standard to another one. So it's a general problem. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, this problem is particularly sensitive in the sense of, in the case of religious belief or faith. Uh, and the Scandinavians here don't distinguish between belief or faith. <clears throat> And so, uh, so for Kierkegaard, uh, he, he uses the term leap both in the general sense and a specifically religious sense. <clears throat> and uh, stop actually, uh, he uses leap in, in the religious sense. So he he's suggesting that, oh, religious belief is not just absurd, as Kierkegaard claims, but it also involves some si- sort of blind leap of faith. And so, so Sopfe uses the Kierkegaardian terms not to defend religious belief, but to attack it, right? So this is what's going on. <clears throat> um, yeah. Do you think so, Kierkegaard might be 
kind of sympathetic to Zapfa's view there? I think that it's it's easier to see why um, Zapfa might do this and a lot of people might sympathize with him. Um, having said that, I think that Kirkor is in fairly solid grounds. I, I tried to uh, explain this in my last book. It's it's uh, it's out on Cambridge University Press. So I, I think that Kirkor has fairly good reasons for for uh, not just re- rejecting religious belief, um, but this is a, a rather complicated issue that has to do with what is known in English as the ethics of belief. So mm-hmm. this basically is the a discussion of whether we could justify belief uh, without sufficient epistemic evidence. Mm-hmm. And so Kant and Kierkegaard argues that yes, we can, uh, and Sapfe seems to assume no, we cannot. <clears throat> okay. So for Zapfer, he would say, look, this is all very interesting, but your your admittance that the transition is or religious belief is absurd is the thing that negates that belief itself because you're admitting it's absurd. So Zapfer does Zapfer sort of stop? He uses it, but he stops before the transition even takes place and sort of says, We have to stay on this side of the line because anything else is ridiculous. Yes, that's roughly what's going on. There is a slightly more nuanced uh, discussion in uh, his doctoral dissertation, but r- roughly, if we can simplify matters slightly, mm-hmm. he's basically saying that we need to distinguish between reality as it is and our wishes and desires and so on, on the other hand. Mm-hmm. And so he, he's accusing religious believers of uh, wishful thinking. <clears throat> So, so basically, that's what Sapfe is doing. And he, he realizes in the doctoral dissertation that this is a little freaking fast. So, so he has, uh, there are some nuances there. Uh, but since this is not available in English and so on, I, I think we should wait a little. The good news, though, uh, which um, I'm not sure if I'm at liberty to say, so I, this might have to be removed in retrospect, but... Hmm. Uh, Something's I coming? Seen, I've seen a full um, a full uh, translation of On the Tragic into English, and oh. the translator says that he has a publishing contract. Okay. We'll leave out na- we'll leave out names. I think we might, we'll be okay, but you'll have to let me know if I need to take that out. But that's exciting. That's exciting. Yes, so it could be actually that the both the publisher and the translator would know this to be known, but perhaps they they'll be the ones to decide exactly when and when to announce it, right? <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, so, it, anyway, it's it's a huge work. It's six hundred pages. It's it's a lot of work to translate into English, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not even written in Norwegian. You might say it's just as much written in Danish. Uh, there is absolutely no distinction in the literal written language here between the Danish and the Norwegian one. <laughs> so he's following the old um, 1907 uh, written language, which was shared between Danish and Norwegian. Okay, yeah. that's why it's so difficult to translate. I understand. Okay, so no. just... if if you read Kirkar, it's very easy. <clears throat> uh, but uh, yeah. <clears throat> Just to stay on the Kierkegaard uh, thread, though, because 
uh, like I said, I'm not, I'm no expert in Kierkegaard, not at all. But from the little bits I've read there, and I think this comes up in, might come up in your own papers. There is a, there is what we might consider, or some might consider, a strain of antinatalism in Kierkegaard's thought, where you know, which is yeah. surprising for a religious thinker, where he would say like, your yeah, your exist, yeah. if you are born, your existence is going to be one of anxiety and fear. Uh, in relation to uh, in relation to yeah. the uncertainty of God, so do you think there is a there is an overlap between the Zapfian antinatalism and the Kierkegaardian antinatalism? Do you think there's a place where they meet? Yes, there is some overlap between the very late Kierkegaard and uh, and Zapfian. So basically, um, I'm a Kierkegaard specialist, but Kierkegaard specialists don't really agree on what happened to a late Kierkegaard. So the the standard view is still that he basically went almost mad uh, in his final years. So um, even when Kierkegaard died, his brother, a priest who went on to become a bishop of the Danish church, he said during the funeral that Kierkegaard uh, went mad. And so he was trying to excuse his brother for his violent attack on the Danish state church. And so Kierkegaard was constantly attacking those who, who found it easy to be a Christian and to, to uh, try to try to say that uh, Christianity doesn't involve following Christ. So against those people, Kierkegaard basically said that being a Christian means following Christ, and it's no coincidence that Christ got crucified. So to the extent that you're good and you're a believer who follows Christ, to that very extent, you will end up just like Christ. Mm-hmm. You will end up suffering and being crucified by your fellow man. <clears throat> um, so this is basically what the late Kierkegaard says, and he, he says that life is so bad that you shouldn't have children, and you should, shouldn't even have sex. So he's, the late Kierkegaard is very ascetic, <clears throat> very much against sexuality, and it seems very pessimistic. And also in this final stage, he was influenced by Schopenhauer. <clears throat> and so we still don't know exactly what happened. And 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 basically, uh, almost all Kierkegaard scholars think that Kierkegaard went way too far. <clears throat> and so he lost a lot of the nuances he had earlier on. So he was very much engaging in a heavy polemics, a heavy attack on the Danish state church, and he went a little too far, most of us think. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Anyway, um, this is something that Sub uh, <coughs> valued, I think. On the one hand, he, he attacking the state church seems like a, a good thing for Sub. On the other hand, it exposed how bad Christianity is, after all. So he, it, I, but the thing is that whereas most people would say that, oh, Kierkegaard is overly pessimistic, then I think Sapphire would say that, no, basically, Kierkegaard is right that human life entails suffering, meaninglessness, and so on, and you shouldn't have children. <clears throat> So, so bo- the late Kierkegaard and Sapphire are both antinatalists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hate to ask, I'm sure it's a question that comes up in Kierkegaard's scholarship. How does Kierkegaard synthesize be fruitful and multiply uh, from Gen- yeah, Genesis? Yeah, Genesis yes. and not having children. Would he say that 
if you end up in marriage, then it's sort of an un- you're being pulled by something unfortunate. Well, uh, this is something that most Kierkegaard scholars are very uncomfortable with discussing. <laughs> and you know why? What? There's a big work on this. There's a big book in Danish. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not translated. I'm not sure it will ever be translated. You know why? The book is on anti-Semitism. Uh, from, by, so by, by Kierkegaard. So it's a secondary source. So basically... Uh, the Kierkegaard here looks like an anti-Semite who says that it's only Judaism who is concerned with the goodness of life, having children and stuff like that. So the late Kierkegaard then it really draws a line between uh, Judaism, which he thinks is very much um, pro-life and um, not in the sort of American sense, but it's it's anti-pessimistic, mm-hmm. right? And then he separates this from what he describes as New Testament Christianity. Uh, and the late Kierkegaard takes the latter to be very pessimistic. Yeah. yeah. So so that's the brief answer. So, um, yeah. So this idea of having many children and so on... Uh, uh, it's dismissed by Kierkegaard as not being a really Christian idea as, at all. It's only a Jewish idea. <clears throat> I see. I see that he interprets as being selfish and, and sinful and so on. Um, well, I'm sorry to have found the one uncomfortable Kierkegaard question to ask you. No, it's it's perfectly okay. I, I think if you want to uh, investigate this more, you should uh, talk to Peter Tuvard, who wrote this book. Uh, about Kierkegaard and anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Con- a controversial uh, figure? I, I don't think... I, I, I wouldn't say so, but it, it's uh, well known that there's been a, 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 a big controversy in Denmark mm-hmm. uh, involving some of the same names, but not for the same reasons. So I, I, I think it's... I wouldn't say... Um, well, let's just say that the whole issue of Kierkegaard and anti-Semitism hasn't been sufficiently discussed by scholars, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And um, there is a lot of material in the late Kierkegaard that seems problematic in many ways. It's not too clear how it affects the earlier Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. And, and we, if you want to, it's possible to do a separate podcast on this. It's a fairly big issue. So, yeah. Sure. Okay, okay. Yeah, that would be great. But uh, just to, I mean, I guess to jump back, I'm really interested in this thread, Kierkegaard and Zappa, because it seems one of those cases where the small a small disagreement ends up into a large difference. But I guess one big question to begin that discussion on morality, because we've you've sort of given us the foundation here. We've had the the four cornerstones uh, of Zapfian thought, the difference between the two in terms of the absurdism and the leap. So how does uh, morality and ethics be built from these both these positions do you think the difference between the two is how one has a relationship with suffering and i guess maybe zapfer would say that kierkegaard and suffering is like you're just being absurd again to consider suffering anything other than just suffering yeah okay so on the one hand there is this deep issue of, of how to handle suffering and i don't think that kierkegaard wants to explain it away rather i think uh, he, he thinks that in some sense you should embrace suffering and accept it. Mm. 
and that seems very demanding, yeah, uh, and somewhat paradoxical. Um, Kirk or sorry, Subway is not very happy with that, and it really has to do with morality, but not morality in a very narrow sense, but morality in a, a very broad sense that has to do with what's the point of your life? Is it happiness? You die money, or is it something else? Uh, so morality in in antiquity had to do with holistic considerations not just a lot, lot of different actions and so on, but it has to do with what kind of person you are, what's your virtues and vices, right? It has to do with um, happiness as um, the purpose of human existence and things like that. <clears throat> and so if we take morality in this uh, very sort of broad classical sense, I think uh, morality is crucial for both Kierkegaard and Sapfe. <clears throat> But it's a little difficult because in order to, to deal with this, you need to consider happiness and prudential issues. <laughs> and also, I think uh, that religious issues enter here. So so um, mm. we could spend a lot of time on this. Uh, it's, 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 it's a fairly uh, complicated area, as, at, at least for Kierkegaard. Um, because he tries to to sort of sketch some kind of solution here. Sapfi is more sort of um, well, at least some of his points could be stated fairly briefly. So so he thinks that in some sense, um, meaninglessness is a fact of life, just as is moral uh, injustice. So there are some problems that cannot be explained away, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and because of this. We, we have a problem, and the problem cannot really be solved by appealing to God or anything like that for Sopfe. <clears throat> so he, he thinks that um, uh, we should be sort of um, frank or sincere and just state the problems <laughs> and uh, and see that we cannot really solve them. And because we cannot solve the problems of meaninglessness and injustice, it's better than to, um, to put it brutally to to abolish the human race <clears throat> yeah so once we admit to these problems and admit that all the religious leaps and absurdism is simply that is absurd and just accept that it's nonsense for zapfer then the only conclusion would be to wind down the human race and if our moral duty in the schopenhauerian sense is to alleviate suffering then yeah the end result of that would be just to allow the human race to run its course. Would Zapfer agree with that, or would he? Is there a bit more? I'm assuming there's probably a bit more nuance to that, or does he simply want the human race to to die out? Would that be the the best result for suffering? I think he probably is committed to the view that um, the best thing would be is if the human race were to disappear. <clears throat> However, there are a lot of sort of complicated issues here and so one has to do with suicide uh, and so he is not um, at all happy with the sort of standard objection to pessimism that pessimism favors suicide mm-hmm. and so he tries to defend pessimism without uh, recommending suicide or making a suicide overly attractive or e- even a moral duty 
And so uh, he's never able to really solve this problem. He basically makes different commands of different points in time. So he's he makes one note here, one comment there, and then it's it's not too co developed. It's not too coherent. <clears throat> uh, and and um, the the problem is that he didn't really discuss this in any systematical text. He just makes a lot of different comments at different stages, right? So, for instance, during the Cold War, war and, and the, sorry, the Cold War, mm -hmm. uh, Sapphire was really in favor of NATO. He was really supporting um, nuclear weapons, um, and he, he thought that we needed them um, to protect ourselves. And then when he was asked about the potential of a, a great nuclear war or the human race being nuked, what was his response? His response was, an island without any inhabitants wouldn't be so bad, would it, right? So <clears throat> he basically said that if, if mankind were wiped out, um, it would be for the better. That was the suggestion uh, or the implication. Or, <clears throat> yeah. So, um, yeah. And this falls from the, his basic assumption. So basically, if you have a problem we cannot solve, <clears throat> Um, we cannot get around meaninglessness and injustice, and and uh, Danny thinks that it's better to abolish the human race. <clears throat> so he's pro nuclear as long as we use them. Yeah, it, it wasn't too clear in this context. Uh, I'm politically, it's it's fairly clear, uh, although this is not too no well known. He was belonging to the right wing in Norway. He was uh, in support uh, of uh, NATO very much. And um, and yet, I think that unlike most of his contemporaries, he, he didn't think that the nuclear war was would just be disastrous. <clears throat> mm. uh, I, yeah. And so this is in line with his, his view, his pessimistic view, basically. Um, <clears throat> human life is so bad that perhaps it wouldn't be such a great tragedy if uh, we were nuked. Uh, perhaps uh, also suicide shouldn't be uh, rejected or attacked like it, it's been done in, in, in the past, right? So he, he, he makes different suggestions. It's not perfectly clear, but he, he's, he's basically having more sympathy with, with those who sort of at least allow suicide. And he himself kept a lot of uh, drugs that would make it possible for him to enter, uh, so to, to leave uh, voluntarily. So this is, there is a biography on, on Sapphire by Jürgen Hove. It's called Naked in the Cosmos, so Naked on the Cosmos. And um, it basically uh, describes how Sapphire got drugs, I think it was just morphine, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he thought, thought he had a lethal dose. And so he, he was not planning to use it in the near foreseeable future. He want, just wanted to keep it just in case life became too unbearable for him. And then uh, he made a shocking discovery several years later on that uh, the dose wasn't big enough and so uh, his entire life stopped. He was not able to to go on with his daily 
living or its daily business because it didn't have a sufficient dose of uh, of drugs. <clears throat> and so he then madly tried to get more drugs so that he could have a little dose. And only when he got that, he could sort of go on with his regular life. <clears throat> so his mean his personal meaning for life for a long time was riding was was the foundation of which was the fact that he could end his life yes and then when so he found is, out he couldn't end his life that's when he really wanted to end his <laughs> that's kind of funny. i i think it's it, i don't think he really intended suicide in in but any the, sort of foreseeable the, way the catharsis of the op the option being there yes yeah. so it's more like um someone who's imprisoned right Mm -hmm. And so you could sort of live with being imprisoned if you know that I'm able to escape uh, if if the situation gets much worse, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so this is just how Suffer thought about life. I may endure this for some time if I have this option of exiting mm -hmm. at my own will, right? <clears throat> and so... So and he surely uh, there's many things he, he appreciated like mountaineering, being out in the wilderness and things like that and and uh, and he had a lot of sort of great literary interests and gifts and so on. So in many ways he was a very sort of rich, um, richly talented and very sort of uh, well certainly not a monomanic uh, pessimist, right? Uh, quite the opposite. Um, yeah, and then lives to be quite old as well, right? Into his ninety. Yeah, yeah, typical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's always the way the the pessimists always live a long long lives. Yeah, I'm not sure why that is. So, <laughs> I guess one question from all of this that we've spoken about is, um, what's the individual? Well, actually, before that, because Zapfer, I think a lot of people would, who are not antinatalists and are not pessimists might say, well, hang on. I enjoy my life. I have no problems with the body. I, I'm fine yeah. with uh, my body degrading and dying. I'm fine with suffering. I enjoy my life. You know, I, I personally have known plenty of people who are well into their 80s and 90s who are still happy and enjoying their life. Isn't Zap for making a an authoritarian error, saying that all people... Would he just say those people are just lying to themselves? So basically here, he's committed to a fairly paternalistic view, right? <clears throat> So his theory is not about how different people sort of conceive themselves. So he's not a subjectivist here. He thinks there is an objective truth that, that you can be mistaken about. And this objective truth concerns meaning, not just the subjective experience of meaning, but real meaning out there <laughs> independently of us, and also um, suffering and injustice. That we can be mistaken about. So, so he's basically committed towards a fairly strong view, and he needs a lot of sort of uh, typical philosophical justifications to defend this view, right? <clears throat> and so, so he needs to show that uh, people are mistaken. <clears throat> uh, still, I think he could say that. Uh, it, it might be in some cases that it's better to just leave people alone with her. Illusions, right? <clears throat> yeah, most uh, people don't think, know. Most people don't know they're in prison. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So, um, I guess for Zapfer as well, there's a question of what what are we to do? 
Like, are, are we actually to accelerate? You know, the the end of would would there be a pra- like almost a practical Zapfian morality of pushing the word out about how awful the world is in relation to that? And I don't know. Uh, theoretically yeah. speaking, a Zapfian position might be to legalize euthanasia clinics and things like that. Is there anything like that, or is this okay, once again so- more? More, okay, uh, so abstract. yeah, uh, thanks for asking. So first, he's not too comfortable with really pushing uh, suicide as a, a duty or anything like that. So what he's suggesting instead is that it's morally wrong to have children. Mm, okay. So uh, in 1933, in um, the Last Messiah, he, he states very clearly that you should stop having children because you will only sort of um, add to the misery by by having children. So it will increase uh, injustice and meaninglessness and so on. In 1941, um, he had a weaker views. In 1941, he had uh, what is sort of an anticipation of the one-child policy of China. <clears throat> So he said that instead of abolishing humanity right now, we should just make sure that every pair uh, only have one children. And so we will quickly sort of um, diminish the number of humans. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't even claim that this is very realistic. He just said that this is um, the best we could expect or something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Again, he, he didn't develop this in great detail. <clears throat> yeah. But it, it what it seems clear though is that he thought the best solution was just stop having children. Uh that will solve the problem. <clears throat> and then he was not so perfectly clear about suicide mm-hmm. or even nuclear war. <clears throat> but would would death be seen really as like the ultimate gift does he have much philosophy on death or is it just an inevitable yeah he does and it's it's very paradoxical and and difficult um so on the one hand he thinks that that is something bad because um we have projects and even local meaning in life and our projects are uh abruptly and and arbitrarily sort of ended by death <clears throat> and so we might think of a great artist who is creating something and then he's unable to finish his great work just because of health issues and this is a familiar phenomenon actually yeah <clears throat> and so um so Sapfer thinks that life is that is bad so he seems to suggest that it would be good to be able to go on living. This is paradoxical. Ha- and here it seems to be abstracting from the problems uh, mentioned before, uh, the problems of injustice and meaninglessness. Uh, and uh, also, it's even more complex because when he argues that in order to see that life is meaninglessness, we need that. So that has is indispensable, he suggests, for uh, seeing that life as a whole is limited. Mm. It's only when you run up against that that we see that um, 
we cannot go on indifferently and uh, there is an end to projects and life is a limited whole. <clears throat> so he thinks that facing that helps us uh, epistemically. It makes us see life in, in a holistic picture. You get a greater picture by confronting that, he thinks. And he sees that I'm doing this for that and so on. Things are local justifications, but there is no global justification. <clears throat> yeah. mm. So I hope you don't mind if I ask, has uh, Zapfian philosophy influenced your own your own life, your own outlook? Uh, not too much, but I, I think that, uh, well, on the one hand, there, there, there's certainly a, enough problems in life. So <laughs> there are problems with... Uh, well, moral injustice, there's problems with meaning and, and meaninglessness and suffering and things like that. So Safi is fairly good at describing some of the problems. <clears throat> and I think you need to sort of think through this and to see whether you think it's right or, or not and what's what are good reasons here and what are not. So I think Safi helps you by provoking you. Uh, he, he helps you to think through things and to make up your own mind. But unfortunately, his effect, then, at, at least here in Norway, seems to be very polarizing. So either people love him <clears throat> and think he's just right, so he he's almost attracts religious believers <clears throat> who, are, who are sort of committed pessimists, believing pessimists, or people just flat out reject him as being overly pessimistic. And... The unfortunate thing is that often these people will not argue much for the news. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So we have basically two camps. Uh, yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add about uh, Zapfer, Kierkegaard, or the discussion we've been having uh, that you, you feel is key to, to add in? I, I think that Zapfer is right to emphasize problems of suffering and evil and so on. I think it, this is also uh, relevant for ongoing debates. Uh, because perhaps the greatest problem with religious belief is the problem of evil. It's it's one of the problems that won't go away. So even if you're somewhat sympathetic to religious belief and think there's a, a lot of important work being done by theologians and philosophers and so on, there are also some serious problems uh, that it's not easy to solve. <clears throat> and I think also that in many ways, um, okay, I think... First, you might say that Safi is, is great by combining some of the continental and analytic philosophy. <clears throat> and I think this is the way to go, really. I think the whole divide is unfortunate. And so uh, Safi is really anticipating what came later in the 1970s and so on, when analytic philosophers became uh, interested in the meaning of life and issues like that. So, in, in uh, so... Basically, during uh, World War II, he wrote in an analytic manner uh, and discussed the, uh, the meaning of life. So he was doing this 30 years before um, Nagel and others, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. Another uh, good thing is that he, he anticipates a lot of the discussions we're having today about uh, antinatalism and pessimism. And so the view he sketches is um, not identical, but similar to the view of Benatar and others who think there is a specific problem with cosmic meaning. <clears throat> uh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, yeah. That's okay. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Are you currently working on any more Zephyr or is? Uh... At the moment, I'm, I'm working in ethics, so I, I think uh, there's a deep problem here having to do with uh, the relation between morality and um, happiness, you might say, or the relation between morality and uh, prudence, because uh, I think we should assume that um, prudence uh, seeks, aims at happiness. <laughs> so personal happiness is something that generates prudential reasons for, for action. Right. And so uh, the problem I'm working on now, which also concerns software, is how to uh, make morality coherent with uh, personal happiness and prudential striving for prudential happiness. So the, the problem is, right, that by doing morally good, you could end up being miserable and so on. Mm. And so it, it's not clear at all that morality um is coherent with self-interest so so that's a big big issue do you i mean just as an aside do you think happiness is is actually something worth going for just because you but because I, I only say that because i just think there's a there's a cult there's a modern cult of happiness right where it becomes the the ultimate the ultimate aim of all things is just to pleasure yeah. and happiness right i mean i don't think it's always the best yeah the best personal teleology that's not to say you have to be a pessimist yeah, yeah. and unhappy, though. So, yes and no. I, I don't think that happiness is so important uh, necessarily, but it really boils down to what you mean by happiness. And and if you <laughs> just mean by that that whatever makes your uh, life better than it would have otherwise been or something like that, so you might think of it as, as a good, right, <clears throat> that um, makes life perhaps justifiable or, or acceptable or at least better than it would otherwise have been, then I think that happiness is a is crucial, actually, even though its relation to morality is, is a little difficult to, to pin down. Um, so I, I'm not saying that uh, we should think of happiness just in, in subjective terms. Uh, I actually think we could be mistaken about our own happiness. And I also think there are moral restrictions on happiness. <clears throat> and so I, I'm, I think that there's a big problem here. Uh, it doesn't really have to do with just feeling happy. Being happy is not just the same as feeling happy. <clears throat> mm. yeah. Okay, okay. Well, um, you said uh, your book is via Cambridge University Press. Um, yeah. Is there anywhere else we can find your other work? Uh Okay, so I, I try to upload most of the stuff on academia, and also you find a lot of my papers on field papers. Mm-hmm. And if you don't find something, you might send me an email. Sometimes I'm not at liberty to upload everything, and and so, uh, but uh, still, often it's uh, allowable to share some stuff in private. Yeah, okay. and so um, yeah, but I, I'm not at liberty, of course, to share entire book manuscripts and things like that uh yeah okay but well, i am yeah I, I think basically i'm i'm seeing uh ethics in a classical sense as being very much uh, about what is called existential issues after kirchhoff so I, i'm really trying to approach ethics uh existentially and all and vice versa you might say to approach existential philosophy 
ethically. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So, okay. yeah. Does it make sense? Or yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Are you currently writing a book on, on this ethics or is it? Yeah, I'm doing a new book now on uh, morality and self-interest. So um, it has to do with uh, this classical problem of uh, morality not uh, coinciding or harmonizing with um, happiness and prudence. That's a classical issue. And if we go back to a discussion we just had, we could sort of uh, restate the problem and say that the problem is how to compare moral standards and prudential standards. And so if we have separate standards, how could we compare them and even rank them? We don't have any third standard that allows us to, to rank them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is a, a decisive issue, because if we cannot solve this issue, then uh, we cannot really say whether uh, morality should override self-interest or vice versa. <clears throat> uh, and so uh, we need to solve this issue uh, concerning um, normative pluralism um, in order to, to make any progress. And uh, in the past, it was uh, described um, roughly as the dualism of practical reason. So mm -hmm. that's the term from Sidgwick, right? Mm -hmm. So Sidgwick con uh, focused only on morality and self-interest, but there, uh, you can generalize this. And you could say that for any kind of good or any kind of reason, you will have this problem as long as you introduce several different standards, right? <clears throat> So if we have legal standards, aesthetical ones, and so on, we could get uh, all kinds of issues having to do with transitions between the standards and also with uh, comparisons and, and rankings of the standards. Right. <clears throat> and so I can is, see um, there why there might be a foundation of Kierkegaard in the leap as well, the deduction between the different standards of ethics. Yeah, so I, I find Kierkegaard to be quite good and defensible here. I don't think it's any blind leap of it at all. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it's fairly closely connected to some contemporary debates, yeah? And um, also connected to, to some big traditional issues. So, um, yeah. I'm also, yeah, as you probably realize, I'm, I'm also interested in the philosophy of religion so mm -hmm. I, I think it's very a very rich and rewarding field whether you're a believer or not i don't think it, it matters all that much always um yeah and and by the way uh i think that Sapfer sometimes made the suggestion that pessimism was not just about a lack of belief religiously Mm -hmm. Rather, pessimism is about hopelessness. <clears throat> and so you could restate and re sort of re-describe the problem in terms of hope. Uh, and you could do that with religious um, thinking as well. So religion doesn't just have to do with beliefs. It, it has to do with hope. And despair. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, and then the whole sort of terminology, right, with the atheists and theists and so on, it, it breaks down. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. You so don't. You don't find the whole atheists... terminology has to do with yeah. belief, not not hope. That seems like a better heuristic, more productive 
Yeah, and anyway, I, I, sometimes I think that hope matters more to us than than belief, right? In many cases, I mean, it, we need not affirm belief in order to to go on existing. What we need in many cases is uh, some kind of hope that can be justified. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so, typically, we're facing uncertainty, and in 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 face of uncertainty, what do you need? Well, hope is certainly one of the best things uh, we could have in in such situations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this and this is the discussions you're tackling in your the book to be published. Uh to be honest, it's yet another project. I, I've written some papers on it, and and I hope to do a. a more work on this in the future, yeah. Uh, but there's there's a lot of um, interesting work going on these days on the moral psychology of hope. Uh, so I've written, I guess, five to ten papers on, on um, hope and despair. And I hope to develop this in the future into a more systematic contemporary account of the importance of hope and despair. And it... it that has to do mainly with Kierkegaard, but more about the contemporary relevance of this. And unlike uh, contemporary philosophers who mainly focus on the nature of hope, that want to say that, oh, hope consists of belief and desire and blah, blah, blah. I think the main issue is whether hope is justified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I should have put all the links for your your work and also the book on Kierkegaard in the description below. But I feel we've uh, we've covered a good amount of Zapfer and Kierkegaard. So, Rua Fremstedar, it's been a great conversation. Thanks very much. So thanks, James. Yeah.